and we're in Mission 119 right now in the book of Exodus, right? So if you're along with us, you're somewhere around chapter 15, I think. And we're going to be going into the wanderings in the desert this week with, with the people of God and, uh, and the portable tent that they brought around with them, the tabernacle, uh, where, where they ministered uh, to God. And I've been reading this book along with Mission 119, and the book talks about uh, the presence of the Lord and talks about how we think about church and how we worship. And a point that this book makes is that the, the priests and the people that were worshiping in the tabernacle and the temple, uh, they, were going to, they were going to minister before the Lord. In a sense, you could translate it as, as ministering themselves unto the Lord. That's what they were doing. And I thought, that's so simple, but perhaps that's a paradigm shift for, shift for some of us, if not all of us, that when we think about gathering as the church like we are today, or like we did yesterday when we put all these chairs together, uh, or, or when we're in some, a living room gathering, like in our small groups, or, or at a service event like in like Love Saratoga, um, are we thinking about ministering to people, or are we primarily thinking about ministering unto the Lord? It's an interesting paradigm shift. And it's one of those things that changes how you view the church body, the people of the church, uh, from being a time where we sit and we soak it in to a time where we come prepared and ready. And it's one of those things where when you, I'm convinced that when you have the mindset of ministering to the Lord, Lord, what would please you? How do we worship you and serve you the way that you would want us to love you, worship you, and serve you? I'm convinced when you get that right, when you come to a gathering like this, or just go about your life as an idea of ministering unto the Lord, that people get ministered to. It's not our focus to minister to people and to figure out what their needs are and meet their needs. But when we minister to the Lord, it happens. Think about the stories of like Mother Teresa. She went around the streets and she said she was looking for Jesus. She was looking to minister to Jesus. She helped a whole lot of people, didn't she? But the Bible says, whenever you do it for the least of these brethren of mine, you've done it for me. But the question is, where does our heart's gaze go to? Where do our eyes focus? Is it on people? When I come to preach before you, am I thinking, I need to figure out what the, need, what the needs are here and minister to those specific needs? Or is it me going before God and saying, what does God want me to do? How can I please him today? I'm convinced if you do the second, everyone gets taken care of. Because God is just that great. It's so easy, though, to take our eyes off of that model and to just subtly become a well-meaning uh, country club, right? But it is, about, it is about the Lord, and it's about his presence ministering before him. And God's eyes search the earth for people whose hearts are fully his. And he blesses people that prepare and come to worship him and honor him. It's just our God and how he, how he works. So I've been thinking about that shift. I've also been reading in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm not going to read it for you, uh, except for one small part. And I would love you to take it home and take a look at this. And tell me, tell me next week if you think that this reminds you of a church, that, the church that you're part of, this church, or uh, if this is a church you'd like to be a part of. But 
1 Corinthians 13 is the passage that always gets read in weddings about love. But but all of that chapter 13 is just a preface for chapter 14. And uh, that's what's really interesting about it. So next time you're in a wedding, remember, there's another chapter that kind of is essential to reading the love chapter. But I love, uh, read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 14. By love in verse 26, it says, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Uh, There's this idea of coming to church ready with something to, to give. Everyone has unique gifts. Everyone has a unique place in the church body. But what if we all came to church gatherings with the mindset of we are coming to minister before the Lord and to the Lord and for the Lord's glory, and we, we, we came to church with the mindset of edifying or, or contributing something to the larger picture so that someone can receive something. That'd be a pretty wild church adventure, I think. I think it would make, it would be very special. I think that would be something that would please you know, the Lord very much, to see a people whose hearts were burning to have church like that. And I'm convinced that we can do that in this kind of context, not, not just in our small groups. I think we can do it here. How much, how much ministry happens when people come and share a verse in a simple teaching, this is what God said to me through this. How does that minister to you this morning? So that's just my, my thought in the beginning here. <laughs> Does anyone have any, any uh, pushback on that or any, any, any reaction or thoughts based on that? It's good, okay. Heresy? Take the pressure off, yeah. Some of you are ministering here as much or more than I am, I hate to admit. <laughs> Sometimes I'm amazed at what our volunteer ministers here do. I'm like, man, I want to be more like that person. They're so amazing. Um, but yeah, some of you feel pressure you know, from, from ministry, the pressure to perform or to figure something out or to, to make the ministry go forward. But God's going to do that. We're called to one thing, you know, and that's to him. So this morning, I've been, I've been reflecting on these beautiful padded chairs that you're sitting on. Um, they're really comfortable. And uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sentimental person have a bit of a nostalgic streak. Um, Pastor Horry could tell you about that because I'm pretty nostalgic, pretty sentimental. But uh, these seats aren't everything, but they're a big deal because I heard a very wise person once say, the mind can only tolerate what the behind can bear. Can stand? I don't think saying the behind can bear is a very good thing to say, but can stand. So you really can only pay attention as long as you're comfortable. Or it'll just make it easier to fall asleep during my sermons. I'm not sure which. The seats are, are not everything, but they're, they're a nice thing. We've been on folding chairs for over 20 years. They've been, they're our tabernacle chairs. The traveling tent worship of the people of God. And let me tell you, I became a follower of Jesus Christ in those folding chairs. And um, I... I felt my call to ministry sitting in one of those chairs. I was filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time in one of those chairs. And many of you can say that you have had many experiences of God in those burgundy folding chairs. 
I shared last week, my son got his head stuck in those chairs on Easter. And that's funny. As long as he's okay, it's funny. I mean, when a kid gets hurt, as long as they're okay, it's often funny. Because um, it's, how do they fall down so much? But these, those portable chairs kind of remind me, you know, this sense, we, we were a traveling church. We, we met in the old mall. We met in the James Way. We met in, where I started coming to New Life was back when we were in Lighthouse Baptist on Perry Road, which is now a Perry Road Baptist church. And, uh, and then we moved into this building in 2005. And the chairs are kind of the sense of permanence. Like, we have a temple. <laughs> we have, like, when King Solomon built the temple, like, that, that was, like, the permanent structure. And we had just been traveling. But thinking about these new seats um, has, and thinking about the presence of God in our worship, and thinking about how we gather as the church, and what our mindset is coming into his presence, has uh, reminded me of the most important seat that's in the Bible. And we are going to be looking at this seat in our readings for Mission 119, I think, this week. And that seat is the mercy seat of God. Found in the tabernacle, later found in the temple, when God's people used to worship in a structure uh, built for God. So we're going to look at Hebrews 9, 1 to 14. Jason preached about the veil in the temple that was torn when Jesus uh, died on the cross and rose again. And how that created us a way for us to come right to the Father, right to the Holy of Holies. Aaron, uh, our teaching pastor, two weeks ago preached about how, you know, all of us have sinned from the time of the first Adam till the, till the present, but that Jesus uh, has taken our sin on himself so that we can be saved. All of these ideas kind of highlight the holiness of God and how even with all that God has done for us and made all these accommodations for us to bring us into a place where we can worship him, that there's still an amazing holiness uh, to God, incredible holiness and specificity in some of his, uh, his instructions in coming before him. In Hebrews 9, uh, is written after Jesus was crucified, but it's reflecting on the tabernacle and what that was like back in the day. It says, Now the first co- covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. The direct translation of that, word, that phrase, atonement cover, is the mercy seat. The mercy seat. So that was the lid to the ark. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, everything was set up just right, 
the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself, for the sins the people had committed in, in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered in that style of worship were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. All, none of that was able to actually forgive sins. It was pointing to something else. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. You're going to see this week that this tabernacle, very specific instructions from God were given on how to build this tabernacle. Um, the message uh, is that, of, of all of that, is that God is a holy God. That's the picture of the tabernacle. That uh, he can't be approached just any way that people want to approach him, like improvisational, <laughs> but... Uh, he sets the terms, and he sets the understanding of how we are to come before him. Which is why one of the reasons I wanted to preach on Psalm 24 last week that talks about preparing ourselves to meet with, with a holy God. Uh, we are not in a time of tabernacles and temples anymore, but just the imagery of the temple shows us God is a holy God, and we need to approach him with respect and reverence and on his terms. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be approached. And he can be. But when we come into his presence, we come into the presence of a holy God. God's holiness didn't go away in the first covenant. He's still holy, almighty God uh, to this day. Um, and there's many stories in the Old Testament of people just not showing the right kind of reverence for God and not following his instructions uh, in, in worship. And it just didn't go well for those people at all. Um, God invites people to meet with him on his terms. It's interesting because God didn't say to Moses, build a, build a tent any way you think you should. Just like wing it. I'm sure it'll be fine. And everyone can worship me in that. He gave really specific dimensions. And one of the things that we need to be careful of uh, in our day, in our, in our life, in our spiritual life, is that we think rightly about the holiness of God, that we take him seriously, take him at his word, and come before him with a proper attitude for our God is a holy God. In the tabernacle, which was meant to point to Jesus Christ, which we'll see, uh, the imagery was there was an outer court, right? And it was entered through a gate, and it was 150 by 75 feet. And it was separated by a curtain and many pillars from a place called the holy place. And then there was another curtains and things blocking people from the holy of holies where only the high priest was able to enter. So there's this imagery of, of coming to God uh, from the outer courts to the inner courts. And on the outer courts of the temple... There was a place for people to offer sacrifices for their sins. When people came into God's presence in this tabernacle system, the first thing they did was recognize God is holy. 
My sin separates me from God, and there has to be a sacrifice made to cover that sin. That was not able to take away people's sins, but pointed for them, and it points for us to the future uh, accommodation that God would make for people. So on the outer courts, uh, people came into worship. They saw that altar, and the first thing they thought was, let's take care of this sin problem. Let's take care of um, the things that are coming between me and God. It was only then that uh, they could move towards, uh, towards in worship. It started with that recognition. And I think for us, the same is true. Um, like Aaron preached a couple weeks ago, we come before a holy God and we need to deal with our sin issues that are ongoing severely, you know, take care of them so that we can worship God rightly. Inside, uh, after, after the outer courts, uh, came the holy place where the priests ministered before God. And they would carry out all the temple worship stuff that God instructed. And then on the very inside, there's a place called the Holy of Holies. So if you can picture it, it's like 15 feet by 15 feet, just a square of space. And in that Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which had the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which had Moses' staff, which was kind of known as Aaron's staff at this point, which had budded, a jar of manna reminding people of God's provision, which we read about this week in the desert. Um, in, and on top of that box, which, which the high priest could only go in to minister before the Lord at one time a year on the Day of Atonement, was the mercy seat, the cover of that box. The lid was pure gold. It was called the atonement cover. That's the literal translation. It means covering for the people. Um, and when the high priest went into that room with fear and trembling, after doing all the purification uh, rituals that he needed to do, he would take blood from the sacrifices and put that blood on the mercy seat, symbolizing how the blood was covering the people's sins and that they could be forgiven. That was on one day every year. That mercy seat was the place where the glory of God dwelt. And he was, God was not stuck on that mercy seat. God wasn't, there was no sense from anyone that God was stuck in the tent or stuck in the temple. But God chose this way to interact with his people where they could come before him in all of his holiness, in all of his presence, in the weight of his glory in this special place. And on that mercy seat, swirling around it, was, uh, was the overwhelming, heavy uh, presence of God. And if you were that high priest, you would want to make sure that you had followed all those purification things properly because that, that's an awesome and mighty thing. All of the mercy of God was on display in that place. Um, the blood for the people's sins the mercy on the high priest that entered into that presence, um, but also the, the dread and, and sort of the, the all-powerfulness of God, the holiness of God displayed 
on that mercy seat. And in that symbolism of the, of the high priest putting that blood on that beautiful, spotless gold cover was a message for us and for the people of that day. That the one thing that stands between the broken law of God and the righteousness, the righteous wrath that God could have for sin is the blood of the sacrificial lamb. That's the one thing, the blood of Jesus Christ. And everything in that tabernacle points to that sacrifice that Jesus would eventually make. And I just want you to, we have to look at these things carefully in the Old Testament, not because we have a tabernacle, not because we have a temple, but because we need to, first of all, understand that God is holy, that God is great, and also that God desires that people come to him and, and, and come into his presence. He desires that relationship. And it also helps us to remember that it's only by the blood of the lamb that was slain that we can have that access to God. And today, the second reason that we reflect on this is that, that we would not grow to take for granted what Jesus has done. This is a real danger for us because we are so divorced from this temple system. And there indeed, you know, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There's no more traditional temple worship happening. But being so separated from those, those rituals and the purification and, and, and going from the, from the outer courts to the, whole, to the holy place, to the holy of holies, and, 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 and the Ark of the Covenant, all the power and glory of God expressed in that, uh, in that mercy seat. We're so separated from that that when we hear about Jesus dying for our sins and his blood covering our sins so that we can come right to God and have that access to him, we take it for granted. We take for granted everything that God's done to make this way for us. Because God's will was always to send Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. It was always to provide this way for us to come directly to him through that, through that sacrificial blood. And, and now that we have it, we tend to just sit on it and take it for granted. Rather than saying, wow, God's made this way for me to come directly to the Father. I don't have to rely on a priest or a pastor or a certain church and their teachings. I can come directly to the Father through this amazing way that Jesus has opened. So looking into the second half of our passage. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption for us. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. 
We're not under the old covenant anymore. But through Jesus' blood, we have become the church of the firstborn. We have been given this ability to come directly to God, not going through all those hoops. But we must do it with the same spirit of reverence and appreciation that this merits. So when I think about us gathering as a church, think about us being the church, think about us bringing something to the table every week, thinking about uh, shifting our mindset from ministering to people or ministering uh, for some other reason to ministering to God and honoring God. The root of all that is that we've been given this possibility through Jesus' sacrifice to do just that. It's been taken care of by him so that we can go forward. So the way that we worship now, first, now that Jesus has made this way, we gather. We simply gather. It says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Because Jesus has made this way for us to come to the Father, we, we gather and we think about how we can spur each other on to love and good deeds. And we don't give up gathering, even when it gets tough, even when it gets awkward, even when we, you know, whatever the case may be. So the first thing we do is we gather. The second thing we do is we praise. We give honor and glory to God for everything that he has done, for the way that he's made through Jesus, for everything he's done in our lives. Uh, we, we worship God. That time of musical worship is such a sweet time with so much potential in it for us to praise God, to thank him, to come before him with, with joy and singing because he has brought us into his family. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's redeemed us. For some of us, he's healed us physically. You know, I mean, God has done great things. And when we take for, so for granted the way that God's open for us, sometimes we just don't praise. We're like, well, it's one more thing to do in church, I guess, on the agenda. But this is the time to praise. We gather, we praise. Third, why led us in earlier, confession. Worship, just because we don't have the uh, temple system anymore, doesn't mean that the first step shouldn't be remembering our sin. I love the imagery that they walked by this altar and they just remembered, I need, to, I need to take care of that before I keep going into worship. And they kept their confessions current. And that's something that I did this week. I had, I had, I had, to, I had to, before, you know, a few days ago, before I came into the weekend, I said, you know, we're going into worship. There's a few things that I feel like I, I've sinned against God and I need to confess those things. So I did. And now I'm fine. And that's, that's because the minute that those confessions leave your lips... When you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's God's power. That's, it's incredible. If people in the temple worship system, they would have killed to have what you have. You can just confess your sin and God forgives you. Boom. Relationship restored. Guilt gone. And confessing to a brother or sister in Christ who's a trusted person you can talk to and be in community with, all the better. In fact, I think that's a much better way to do confession. Because it just somehow that really solidifies it so you don't get into a shame spiral. So, so we come into God's presence. We, we gather with, a, with an eye to give to other people. We praise God. And then we confess our sins. Next, we pray. In worship, we speak to God directly about what's on our minds. We pray for our church and for the people around us and for the things that, that God brings to our remembrance. Um, we gather to hear from God's word, from each other, 
from the pastor, from the elders, from, from whoever has a word to share. Uh, reading the scripture, uh, listening to what God is saying to us through, the, through the, some of those, the songs we sing have scripture in them. Um, the sermon, anything that happens in worship. Uh, sometimes when I'm, when I'm in musical worship, I'll feel like the Holy Spirit is, um, I pick up a Bible and I feel like he wants me to read something in the Bible. And it just recenters my heart in God's word. Uh, next, we remember what Jesus did for us. This is so important. And maybe this should have been right at the beginning uh, after confession. You know, we remember that uh, the way that has been opened to us through Jesus, and that's why we take communion, to remember what Jesus did for us, that his blood has covered our sins. Um, we give in church, not just financially. You have to understand that passage in 1 Corinthians 14, each person, it says, has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. There's so many ways in which we give in church. And I was just talking about this with one of our elders this morning. The thought, you know, it's not just 10% of our money. You know, it's our, we're tithing our lives. We're giving ourselves uh, to God when we come to church. And it's a different mindset than coming to, to soak it all in. And finally, uh, and maybe there's more, but these are the ones I have. Responding to God's love through allowing him to change your life, to actually change you, to, to turn things over to him in worship that you need to turn over to him, to listen to the, what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and respond and leave this place uh, different than when you came. So that when you walk out the door in response to the word, in response to prayer, in response to your time of praise, in response to the confessions that you've made and the, and the resolutions you've made in your heart to following God, in response to remembering the sacrifice, in response to a word that someone shared with you in the church body that really spoke to your situation, to honor that gift that God's given you by listening to it and changing, uh, letting God do that transformation in your heart so that when we leave, we're different than we came. So the, wor the worship team is very fittingly uh, closing us with a song called 10,000 Reasons. So they're going to come up on the stage. And, and as they are approaching the stage and getting ready to lead us in this worship song, um, this is a song that, that deeply calls us to remember the holiness of God and worship him with our entire lives because of the great things that he has done. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O my soul. Worship his holy name. I love the psalmist because uh, oftentimes the psalmist is talking to himself. It's, it's telling himself, you know, why am I so discouraged? Why am I so downcast, O my soul? Remember, your hope is in God. And this is a song that's saying, O my soul, I'm telling you, worship the Lord. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, because God has opened a way through Jesus for us to come directly into his presence and to be the church that he's called us to be, to gather for a purpose, to see his will unfold, not only in our individual lives, but in this community we call New Life Fellowship. Let's worship him.
worship you, God. We worship you. We praise you for making a way for us to come directly to you, God. You are holy. You're worthy. If I could be so bold as to ask you, God, my heart's true desire is that this church be like the mercy seat for you. Be a place where you can come and, uh, and do, have this sanctuary be set apart. A place where you can uh, minister as you see fit. And God, of course, if you came in your full glory, none of us could stand. Um, but as much as is possible, God, my desire is that we would be a place where your Holy Spirit has free reign, where you are worshipped and you are the Lord and you, we are not. You are calling the shots. Where you heal people physically, emotionally, where you save people spiritually from sin and death, where we change, we become like Jesus, and we become stronger as a body of Jesus as we come together. It's my heart's desire Bless each member of this body as they, as they consider what it means to be a part of a church body, and particularly this church body. Bless them, God. Let them hear your voice and know what you're calling them to. And let us come to worship next week again, seeking you, God, to minister before you. Thank you that we have only seen a small taste of what you will do, God. We praise you today for who you are. I pray your blessings on your people. Bless each one here, God. Open eyes, soften hearts, renew minds. In Jesus' name, amen.